Hello, and welcome to the Salem on the Go podcast, a community of Christ followers that seeks the well-being of all people, a place where you can connect, commit, and continue to grow in your faith. In this new teaching series called Resilient Faith, we'll explore what it means to have a resilient faith in the middle of a digital age. Each week, we'll explore what it means to have faith in a world with strange new customs, habits, and gods. So let's turn now to part two of our series, Faith That Longs for Relationship. Now, as I said, we're in the second part of this series, Resilient Faith. And this is a series that um, I'm actually building off. I didn't bring the book with me this week. But the research that was embedded in a book called Faith for Exiles, done by David Kinneman, it's a book in which they've explored uh, through research-based evidence 18 to 29-year-olds and their trends in faith. And, uh, and so what we're going to do over the next few weeks is look at what it means to be a resilient disciple in an ever-shifting world and in, in a rapidly changing world and discover how we, we don't just avoid the screens that are in front of us or the movement of society, but we learn how to find faith in it. Discover it deep in the depths of it. And last week, we talked a little bit about how we use our screens. Some of you were okay with sharing your screen uh, time. Others of you were a little embarrassed to pull out and tell us what your screen time was. But stats don't lie, right? I mean, they, we realize we are using our screens. In fact, this, is, this uh, slide that we're going to put up here uh, on the screen demonstrates how much screen time we use. The big, I don't even know what color that is. That is that's for my wife to tell you what color the big one is there. But that big square right there is 2,767 hours, representing the time every single year that a typical 15 to 23-year-old is in front of a screen. 2,767 hours per year, typical. And you would think, oh, well, they're 15 to 23-year-olds, but the numbers are not that much different from those of us who are in other generations at this point. We're all around that same number at this point. Now, the staggering part of this this graph right here is the bottom right corner, because the bottom right corner with the two little squares that are there represent the average time that a 15 to 23-year-old is taking in spiritual content. And you move from 2,767 hours on a screen down to, for someone who is raised in church or goes to church, 291 hours per year that you're taking in spiritual content of um, of some form. Or for those who don't go to church, about 153 hours is how much they're taking in. And so you just start to weigh out those two numbers right there. The difference between 2,767 and 153 for unchurched kids or 291 for church kids. And it just sort of blows your mind. This is where we are spending our time. This is what we're being consumed by. And this is exactly why I want to focus on what it means to be a resilient uh, a resilient disciple in a world that is absolutely shifting around us, whether we want to admit it or not. And last week I did introduce just briefly some of the studies that were done where they picked these 18 to 29-year-olds. What I didn't tell you is that they broke down the 18 to 29-year-olds in, in several categories. They said, okay, so if you, were, uh, if you were raised in the church, what does your life look like on the other side of adulthood or becoming an adult? And as they started to explore these, they, they broke them down into four categories, okay? So the first category is these students who were raised in the church and they've come out of the church, and now we would call them nomads. There's about 30% of them. And the nomads are the ones who, or I'm sorry, the prodigals, uh, and and there's about 22% of them. The prodigals are the ones who've drifted away altogether. On a survey, they would say, yeah, I was raised in church, but I'm no longer affiliated with Christianity whatsoever. 
22% who were raised in church, that's where they are now. And we probably all have in our minds some examples of prodigals who are out there. But then there's this other lump group who said, yes, I still would be classified as a Christian or I would call myself a Christian. And within that group, there's several different groups there. One of them, as I mentioned a minute ago, accidentally, is the nomads. This is 30% of the group. These nomads are the ones who said, yes, I was raised in church, but I really don't go anymore. I really don't attend anymore. I don't participate in any of the activities, but I would, I would identify myself as a Christian. I just don't want to participate in any of the things. And so there's about 30% of those. And then uh, another segment of this group are those who we would call the habitual churchgoers. And the habitual churchgoers, there's about 38% of those, so close to 40%. They would say, yes, I'm a Christian, but I really only go to church. I don't buy into all the things that Christians believe. I don't, I don't really buy into, you know, the idea of, of, of practicing spiritual disciplines or taking Christ on as my, as my personal Savior and those types of things. But I go to church, and so that's about 40%. And then we look at this one group. It's a very small group of 10% who they called resilient disciples, who not only were raised in church and would identify as being Christians, but they also would say, and I find that my faith is extremely meaningful today. It's central to my life. It's one of the most important things that I carry forward. And so every practice that we're going to talk about in the context of this series is picked up from that group of 10%. Because at the end of the day, we're like, well, what made it stick? Why are you, why are you still kind of finding faith in this world that you're living in? How has everything changed? And yet you're still pursuing it. And so what we want to do is look at the things that they identify with and the things that make them resilient. And that's, I, I introduced these last week, but once again, just to go over them, they identified that they had an intimate relationship with Christ, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Resilient disciples developed muscles of cultural discernment. They knew how to operate in the world and how to find their faith, not just in this space, but in every space. Resilient disciples also had intergenerational relationships. We're going to talk a lot about that next week. But they knew how to develop relationships with other people of faith who were older than them. And they could find meaningful relationships there, places of belonging. These resilient disciples also were able to carry their faith into their vocations. So when they entered a vocation in the world, they discovered that this was God's call for them, and that's where they go. And then finally, not only all these kind of were wrapped up in it, but they also believed that their faith called them to a countercultural mission. They couldn't just sit in one place with their faith. They had to be active with their faith. They had to act on their faith in every place that they went. And so those are the five practices that we're going to look at. We're going to get all of those, but I just want to focus on that first one for a few minutes this morning. The intimate relationships one. That, that section right there of intimacy that each of them described. And intimacy and the intimate relationship that each of them had with Christ. This, this is one of the most important things that I kind of pull out of this. They've discovered their identity. Now, all of us as human beings struggle with our identity, right? Who am I really? What am I placed here on this earth for? Who am I at my core? And what makes me distinct from other people? All those types of questions. And social media, I don't know if you've discovered this already, but social media has an incredible way of sort of pushing us into answering this question. If you remember back a couple years ago, Super Bowl 2020, some of you in the room I know don't want to remember that. I'm just over in this back corner right here. And not really big fans of that Super Bowl. I understand it was a heartbreaking night. We all thought the 49ers were going to pull it out. They just didn't. They just didn't have what it took to get to that end of the fourth quarter. 
but I don't want you to focus on the game for a minute. I'm sorry I pulled that up and drew it out. I want you to focus on the commercials. That's really the part we love anyways, right? There was a commercial that came out in the middle of Super Bowl 2020. In fact, I've got the commercial for us. We got, I think we have it in the back. This is a Facebook's groups commercial. Anybody remember this one right here? I, I can't remember the name of it, but one of my favorites. All right, we better turn it off before Facebook marketing gets us and pulls that down. <laughs> this is the Facebook's group. Now, what's interesting about this, and, and I don't know, last week I asked you to look at how much screen time you've used. This week, I'm not going to ask you to do this unless you just really want to, but I looked at how many groups I was a part of on Facebook. I was like, well, I wonder how many I'm actually in on Facebook. I think I'm up to like 93 groups right now is where I'm at on Facebook. So you can go and find your groups if you want to see how many you are on Facebook. But there's something about these groups, and this commercial does this. Each of the groups that are represented there are very, very specific. And they highlight the fact that in your life, your uniqueness, the things that you like, the things that make you uniquely you, can help you forge and form an identity. What they're, what they're suggesting in this way is that our affinities are the things that ground our identity. And another way of saying this is digital Babylon always tells us that identity is grounded in your affinity, what you like, what you enjoy. And if you just kind of put it out there, whatever it is you like, you're going to find somebody who can kind of go along with you, right? Whether it's a rocket club or a rocker club or, or a rock skipping club, whatever it is, whatever you like, you can ground your identity in that. And this, this idea is spread all throughout our society. Where we say the very things that I like, whether it's, whether it's skipping rocks on a lake or rocking on the front porch, those are part of the things that make up my identity, the things that I have an affinity for, that I enjoy doing in life. And the problem with this is this is a completely foreign reality to the life of faith. It's not just what you enjoy in life that creates your identity. And for the resilient disciples that we're looking at in this study and that we're thinking about becoming in our own lives, it's not the case for us either. You see, the resilient disciples that we were talking about in this study, they have a different starting point for their, determining their identity. They have an entirely different platform. It's not what you like or what you do on a consistent basis. It's not your, your occupation. It's not your role in your home that forms your identity. Even all of those things kind of come together and compile into it. It's something entirely different. And that something entirely different is spelled out for us in Paul's letter to the Romans. Now, last week we started with Paul. And we looked at him in a story of how he lived his life. But this week, I want to kind of dig a little bit deeper. Last week, I said that Paul had this unique way in which he was both firmly grounded in his faith, but he also had some flexibility to it. So when he entered into new territories, he could change the way he was living and acting and all those things. But the question that kind of loomed in my mind this week as I was reading it, well, what was he really grounded in? What should you and I be grounded in when it comes to our faith? And one of the ways to explore this is actually in Romans chapter 8. He could go into a new world, he could go into a new place, and he could still stand firm because of what he spells out in Romans chapter 8. That our new identity in Christ demands certain actions and how we live. And this is where we get to by the time we get to Romans chapter 8. Paul has described all the things that will change in your life when you come in contact with Christ. You'll be transformed, you'll receive forgiveness, you'll be justified by faith, all of these things. And by the time we get to Romans chapter 8, Paul says, now that you have experienced this transformation, let me tell you how this has entirely shifted your identity. 
let's look at this together in starting in verse 12 of chapter 8. He says, So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, or we have an obligation, but it is not to live according, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. Right? So we do have an obligation. We should understand how we can live in our lives, but we're not to live according to the flesh. Okay, Paul, well, if we're not supposed to live according to the flesh, what is it? So Paul gives us the other side of the equation. In verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Okay, Paul, we get it. Everything that is natural has an end. It's mortal, all of those things. He says, but if by the Spirit, this is again by the help of God, by the grace of God that he's already talked about, you are to put to death, you're able to put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. We'll live. We're promised this life everlasting, not because of anything that we have done, but because the Spirit has empowered us to do this. But when we take on the, or partake in the life of Christ, something happens to our identity. Look at the next verse, verse 14. This is where he spells it out. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are called what? Children of God. This is a shifting of identities. It's not found in what you do or the obligations that you have in the world, whether that's, that's parenting or if it's some sort of job or occupation that you're in. But rather, Paul says that when we submit our lives to the Spirit, we put to death the misdeeds of the body, we take on the life of the Spirit, and we also operate in this understanding that we are children of God, and that is where we find our identity. And just in case we're not completely clear on this, he goes on in verse, verse 15. He says, the spirit you receive does not make you slaves. And I want you to underline that right there. That's an important part of what he's saying. You aren't slaves anymore to the world that you're operating in. You're not slaves to the things that you like or don't like. You aren't slaves to the expectations that your parents place on you or your family members place on you or society places on you. You're not slaves to the things that you do or don't do. You're not slaves anymore to any of those things that create and form your identity and mind so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption. You've been brought into the family of God, and now your sonship, your daughtership, you are a child of God. And in this way, we cry out, and he uses this Aramaic word for father, which is very colloquial. You know, literally for us would be like, Daddy, you call out, Abba, Father. Daddy God, right? You had this intimacy of relationship. This is your new identity. And Paul is recognizing in this very, very simple, short phrase exactly what rests at the hearts of human beings when we struggle with our identity. Paul recognizes that what we take on in the flesh, the things that you will latch on to, that you say, this is who I am, this is what makes me up, whether it's throwing rocks on a lake or rocking on a front porch or whatever your thing is, those things enslave you. They have this way of choking out your very life. And when you take on an identity from your parents and what they say about you, you're enslaved to that. When you take on an identity that your profession places on you, that you should be doing this or performing at this level, you're slave to that. You're enslaved by that identity. When you take on a, a, an a, a identity that's based on your affinities, the things that you enjoy doing, the things that you like to do, the things that you're good at, guess what? You're a slave to those things. You're enslaved to all these things. You're a slave to other people's perceptions of what that means and where you go. You're a slave to your accomplishments. You're a slave to your failures. You're enslaved in life. And Paul says there's a better way that we can go as human beings where we aren't enslaved to the other identities that people place upon us. You don't have to live as a slave to your identity. 
You may think that discovering the depths of your identity and your affinities is liberating, but Paul says, no, it's suffocating. It's actually the thing that hurts you the most, and you don't even realize this. You're always trying to do more, to be more, to operate at a better level, to achieve that identity that you think is out there. But every time you think you've gotten to the place where you've achieved it, guess what? It slips right through your fingers. And Paul recognizes how we are enslaved. You recognize, I'm sure, in your life. Every time you've tried to work for an achievement, and maybe you've gotten there, and all of a sudden, it's just not good enough. It's not enough. Paul says, this is the slavery that you live in. Always captivated by what's next. Always held captive by what could come. And Paul says, this needs to be put to death. This is the thing that needs to die in your life. And once it dies, he says, we live according, if we live according to the flesh, then we die. He says, but once it dies, you can recognize your truest and fullest identity. There's a different way to experience identity that comes through our relationship with God. That comes by the grace of God to realize that you and I are all children of God. And verse 16 says it so clearly, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children the Spirit of God is the one who has declared this over your life. And as a child of God, you have nothing to prove to anyone. You have nothing to prove to yourself. You have nothing to prove to anyone else. You don't have to maintain some sort of facade in this world. You can enjoy all of creation for what it is as a child of God and operate in the context of that. And then in the very next verse, he spells this out for us. In verse 17, he says, Now, if we are children, then guess what? We're heirs. Not only are we children of God, but we also can start to receive the benefits that are God's. We are heirs. We are heirs of God. We are co-heirs with Christ. And if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. It doesn't matter what seasons of life we go through or what comes to us. We understand that our identity, our purpose in life, our role in, in, in life, whether it's a high season or a low season, a season of, of health and wealth or a season of sickness and despair, in all of these seasons, we continue to be heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. And we can receive all of these things. You and I can experience all of these things without any judgment whatsoever, without any headaches whatsoever, because our identity is not grounded in the things that happen to us or the things that are around us. Our identity is not found in our relationship to the things of this world. Rather, our identity is found in the intimate relationship that you and I can have with our Creator. Our identity is grounded there. It's rooted in that space. It's in this context of intimate relationships that we discover how we can have a resilient faith that, faith that outlasts any shift. And friends, this is what resilient disciples, that 10% of disciples who've continued on their faith, this is what they've discovered. They've discovered that they can have that intimate relationship. They've discovered that intimacy with God is the thing that grounds them more than anything else in their life. It clarifies their purpose. It clarifies their identity. It clarifies every action that they take every single day. They have this intimacy with God that cannot shift them away. It's the roots that go deep down in the question. So the, so the question that you and I are left with really is, well, how do we nurture this? How do we come to some space? How can you... In your life, come to a space where you can have that same level of intimacy with God. Not just, not just through, you know, routine spiritual practices, but, but a deep and abiding relationship with God. And the answer, and I've got just a few that I want to throw out there, but, but the answers are pretty simple. Pretty simple shifts that you and I can make. And the first one is this. Intimacy is not developed through research. Intimacy is discovered in relationships. 
Now, this is something that's happened within the body of Christ in the context of the church that really needs to be shifted because we've assumed that discipleship, in fact, if I say that word discipleship, one of the first things that comes to mind is sitting in a classroom, maybe with some felt boards or whiteboards or something like that. That's where we think the context of discipleship comes, comes about. But this is a completely foreign idea to the early disciples of Christ. Discipleship is all about relationship and how you enter and engage in relationships with other people who are on the path of faith. Not how you just listen and take in information. Not how you just sort of soak up uh, research and, and do your own research in Scripture. All those things are great, but they don't develop deep and abiding relationships with God. The only way that we're able to forge an intimacy with God is through relationship. In fact, another way of saying this is that we are loved into loving Jesus. We don't learn how to love Jesus. We're loved into loving Jesus. We've got other people around us. And again, I'm going to talk a little bit more about this next week, so I don't want to belabor the point. But we are loved by people who are in our community of faith. And when we forge those close relationships with them, when you're intentional about forging those relationships, maybe with people who are younger than you, and if you're younger, then you forge relationships with people who are older than you. When you do that, you start to develop a deeper intimacy with God. When we love the things that God loves, we learn how to love God himself. So the first is intimacy is not developed through research, but through relationship. The second is this. Relationship starts to reveal the real. When we develop a real intimacy with Jesus, the artificial representations of Jesus that are all around us, they start to fade away. People are turned off by the artificial representations of Jesus they see in society. A Jesus who sort of sticks up for one group over another. A Jesus who gets affiliated with one political party or another. People, people get disgusted with that. And you get more disgusted with it the more that you lean in and actually have an authentic relationship with Christ. You see, intimacy reveals the real. It reveals who Christ really is in our lives. And it starts to turn all these things, uh, all the fake pieces of, of Christ away. Relationship is what makes the difference. It makes the difference for other people around us. It makes the difference for us. It cuts away all the make-believe pieces of who Jesus is. And it helps us look more like him. Think about this in terms of, of married couples. I've been married to Aaron now for 20 years and I can't tell you the amount of times where we're walking down the street or we meet somebody in another town and they think we're relatives. Any married couples ever have that experience? Right? Like, oh, your brother and sister? I'm like, shut your mouth. What's your problem, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean I've, I've lived with her longer than I was with my sister. Yes, that's true, but no, that's, that's insane. But this is, this is what happens. What happens in the context of relationships, the more you live together in relationship, guess what? You start taking on some of the same habits. You start looking more alike in your actions, in the way you walk, in the way you hold yourself, in the way you engage in conversation, some of the quirky things that you say. And this is what happens. When you're in relationship, you actually start to look more like the authentic Jesus than the fake Jesus. And other people around you can see that. The deeper you go into that relationship, the more you represent authentically who Christ is into the world. But that can only come the context of relationship. So it's not through research, it's through relationship. Relationship reveals the real. And then finally, going to church is both necessary but insufficient. And this should come as no surprise, given the fact that relationship is one of the most important things that will help us dig into an intimacy with Jesus. What we recognize in that 10% that I've talked about, all of them go to church. In fact, they, they may not go every week, but they go at least once a month. That's what the survey says. They go at least once a month. So church going is absolutely important. But it's also not sufficient. 
It's not the only thing that we should be doing. It's not, the, it's not the destination. And here's the problem that so often happens. We confuse the starting point with the destination. We arrive at the airport, and we don't ever get on the stinking airplane, right? We just sit there. This is a fantastic terminal. Like, you know, we live our lives like Tom Hank, going back and forth and trying to figure out where we're going to shave our face in the next day. We just sort of live in this place, never fully taking off. And ultimately, the starting point should not be our destination. It should be grounding for us. It should be encouraging for us. It should uplift our spirits and give us more tools. But through those doors back there, outside of your homes, around in your neighborhoods, this is the destination. This is where God is calling us to. And if we're going to be a people who are deeply in relationship with God, we have to dig deeper. We cannot mistake the starting point for the destination. And I know this already. I know our starting points vary from person to person. It really does. It varies all over the place. I was born Tuesday, November 4th, 1980, the day that Ronald Reagan was elected into uh, the White House. That very next Sunday, November the 9th, I was in church. Some of you have that story. You know that. That's your life. That's your starting point. You started in church. You grew up in church. You have that. And perhaps you're like me. You've attended church for years and years and years, and that's your starting point. That's wonderful. Perhaps your starting point, maybe it's a little bit different. Perhaps you had a mother or grandmother or grandfather or, grand, or, or father who, who you just recognized as a person of faith. And your family didn't always take you to church, but, but you saw them. And you saw the life of faith that they lived. And you know that's your starting point. Right? Maybe your starting point was a crisis that happened in your life. I've heard several of your stories even here where it was a crisis moment that occurred, and you had a decision to make on the other side of that crisis. That was your starting point. You're like, I'm going to make a difference in my life. I'm going I'm to move beyond this personal or this family tragedy, and I'm going to pursue a relationship with God. Right? It could be something unforgettable that you experienced in nature. All of, all of us have different starting points. I don't, I don't know what your starting point is. I don't, I don't want to presume to know what that is. And even though our starting points sort of shift from person to person and they're, they're all over the place and we can map them out and see this beautiful array of starting points, even in your mind, you may be imagining what it looks like for you. I know that God is one who meets us in a variety of spaces. I'm very well aware of that. And I know God doesn't meet all of us on the same level. Very well aware of that. And even though he comes to us in these different spaces, I believe firmly that he comes to every single one of us, whatever the space is, whatever the starting point is, for one reason, to offer you a new identity. He comes to you to offer you a brand new identity that can only be grounded in Christ and one that will give you not death, but life. This is why he comes. You see, my, my starting point personally was that first Sunday after I was born, right? Probably in the Biltmore Holiness Temple. People were rolling around and speaking in tongues and probably running the aisles that Sunday. I don't know. I was too little. But that's my starting point. But that wasn't the destination for me. I was born in that place, but I remember a shift distinctly in my relationship with God when I was eight years old. When I was eight years old, at that point in time, my mom and dad were pastors, and they were pastoring in a little church that met just off of Charlotte Street in Asheville. And it was the upper level of this building. They didn't own the whole building. They just had the upper level, and we would gather there for worship. It was a makeshift TV studio, and on Sundays, it became our church. And at the end of that service, as an eight-year-old, I sat there listening to my father. My father offered a call to prayer at the altar, the front of the church. There wasn't a beautiful rail like this. It was literally just the pulpit 
and the floor up front. <laughs> it's just no chairs. But he offered us this opportunity to come up and pray. And I remember sitting there. I don't even remember what he fully said. Just, you can come to pray. And in that moment, I remember hearing God start to speak to me and offer me this opportunity to go forward. And I felt like a compulsion that I needed to make that move. I just needed to come forward. Didn't know why. I didn't know what was going on fully. And even though I don't remember what my dad preached about and I don't remember why he gave the altar and I don't fully remember why God called me, I'll never forget what my father said to me when I came to the altar. I came to the altar and I kneeled down in that space and my dad simply wrapped his head, hands on the side of my head just like this. And he said over me, Father, you've given me this son and now I give him back to you. Father, you've given me this son and now I give him back to you. And something changed in me, and I couldn't articulate it. In that moment, I, I couldn't tell you, you know, my mama, she's all praising Jesus over the corner. Like, he just got saved. I'm like, I don't know what happened. I don't have a clue. She made me go tell my mama about it all that afternoon. I'm like, I don't really know. I just really ought to. But I will never forget that moment, because in that moment, guess, guess what happened? What God did through the words of my father. He declared a new identity. He declared something entirely different for me in my life. And this is what I believe with all of my heart God wants to do for each one of us. He wants to shift your identity. He doesn't, he doesn't want us as followers of Christ just to be people, be those churchgoers or be those nomads or be those, be those prodigals. He wants to declare you his son, his daughter. He wants you to believe that with all of your heart because it's in the context of buying into that, of living into that, that all of your failures and all of your successes can be pushed to the side and you can be wrapped up completely in who he is and who he wants you to be. And you can start living a life of fullness, a life of joy, a life that is entirely different. You can't be enslaved by your successes or failures. You can't be enslaved by what you like or don't like. You can't be enslaved by what other people think of you. It's only what he has declared over you. And I can't let this moment pass this morning without allowing the power of the Holy Spirit to sort of impart that identity to you. I don't care if you've been in church just like me your entire life. I, I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. I've been in church at that point for eight years. <laughs> I believe there's always these moments where God can declare this identity over, this promise of a new identity. And some of you have struggled with that identity lately. I understand the world that we live in has created that sort of tension. Some of you struggle with that identity because it's grounded in what you do and you no longer do what you did. And so now you're like, I don't know who I am. Some of you struggle with that identity because it's grounded in what you like. And now you don't enjoy that anymore because your body won't let you or you just can't do it. And now you don't know who you are. And some of you are grounded in all of this identity around success or failure. And can I tell you, those things enslave you. They do. You think it's liberating. It's not. It's enslaving. And the identity that can come to you through Christ is the only thing that can liberate you. Your affinities do not define your identity. Only Christ can do that. And so if you've located your, your life in any of these places and any of the other, these other things, I'm going to give you the opportunity this morning to release yourself from that. You're a child of God. 
You are fearfully and wonderfully made by our Heavenly Father. Each hair on our head is numbered by Him, and He knows you by name. He knows all of these things. That is your identity as the son or daughter of God. This is your identity that gives you freedom, that gives you joy, that gives you hope. This is the identity that will create in you a faith that can outlast anything in this world. And this morning, I want to give you the opportunity to use your bodies. Some of you, I'm, I'm going to invite you if you want to come to the altar in the same way that I found that moment. I'll invite you to do that. I'll invite you to make your way here and to offer that prayer. If you're at home, I invite you to find a way to move your bodies into a different position. A very simple way that you can do this as Justin gets ready to sing this last song is to just stand. When we stand, there's an ancient practice of the church. It goes all the way back to the first century and we see this in artwork in Egypt. Early Christians would lift their hands just like this. You see this in churches today. Sometimes we do it, sometimes I do it. But ancient Christians would lift their hands in worship just like this. In both symbol of surrender and in symbol of help. In the same way that my five-year-old continues to come before me and lift his hands up that I might pick him up. This is the symbol that we offer before God. And so some of you may want to make your way down to the altar in this time for prayer and to find that identity firmly grounded in Christ. And I would be happy to pray with you if, you if you want that. But some of you may just want to stand right where you are. And just, I invite you as we sing, lift your hands. Lift your hands in that act of surrender that God might hold you as his child and take you as his own. Gracious God, we come before you this day, not as slaves, not as mere mortals, but as your children. God, I know there's so many things that vie for our attention. There's so many things that try to claim our identity. But as we offer our arms before you this morning, gracious God, I, I'm, I'm asking now, Spirit, that you would just descend upon us in this space. That you would start to declare over us here and wherever we are a new identity that's firmly grounded in you. An identity that would be wrapped up in who you are who you want us to be. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. If you want to move, feel free to do so at the same time. If not, come just as you are.